Good morning, everyone. Thank you, as, as Dan already said, for, for being here today, uh, braving the cold and getting out here. Thanks, Dan, for leading us so well. Uh, worship team, thank you for leading us uh, before the throne of God, as we were singing about. This is our last message on the seven churches in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, well, as we'll get into a little bit later on, it's, it's a little unfortunate. It's, it's not, uh, not really the happiest of endings, uh, the way it could have ended. You wish it would end with, ah, the, the good one, save the best for last kind of thing. But that was, for whatever reason, not the way uh, Jesus decided to order these particular letters. At the beginning of, of the series, we talked about the very real possibility that we can be kind of challenged when it comes to accurately assessing things. We can really disagree. You know, I think I mentioned at the start how critics thought The Last Jedi was a good movie, and uh, all the fans said it was terrible and hated it, or, you know, there was that wide discrepancy on, I think it was Rotten Tomatoes, where critics gave it like 95 and fans gave it a 46 or something like that. Uh, and, and, you know, that's kind of, we've just been through the awards season, if any of you care about that. I kind of don't. For that very reason, often movies that win Best Picture or people that win Best Actor, everyone forgets about it in a couple of years, and some other movie, it proves, will be the one that stands the test of time. If we're honest, we do this a fair bit with, our, with ourselves and our own abilities too, and we actually do it so much that psychologists have a name for this. They call it the Dunning-Kruger effect. So these researchers, Dunning and Kruger, they analyzed a whole bunch of, of tests and experiments. Uh, I don't think any relationship with Bob and Elsie. Uh, spelled differently, actually. Um, and what they discovered through a whole bunch of tests is that people consistently rate themselves as being much higher in, in skill than they actually are. And there's a graph that kind of graphs that. You can see uh, confidence in your own abilities is the up and down axis. And the one going across is actual, actual skill, actual experience. So you see there, the people with almost no experience rate themselves very highly. And tests bear this out. For instance, at a software developing firm, somewhere between 32 and 42% of coders rated themselves as being in the top 5% on the team. That's mathematically impossible, in case you were scratching your head a bit. Or another one, uh, 88% of drivers rated themselves as above average. That's, that's also impossible. But it gets, it gets worse than that, right? The, the 32%, as you can see on the graph here, it's not like just one in three people randomly spread across the workforce thinks they're better than they are. It's the bottom 32% that think they're all in the top 5%. That's what they found at the, the software engineering bottom 32% were rating themselves consistently as experts. And it's kind of a scary thing to, to know that, but it seems to be backed up by a lot of research. And anecdotally, I think we all have experienced this, right? Some of you are teachers, college professors. You've had that student, freshman college kid, thinks he knows better than you do, even though you have a PhD and he barely graduated high school. Some of you coach and you've got that kid that she thinks she knows how to play ball and you are not going to teach her anything. Or, or that kid that was a big deal on his hometown worship team is like, I don't really need any of this music theory stuff. I, I know it all already. 
Today we're going to look at a whole church that seemed to be suffering from this kind of Dunning-Kruger effect in a spiritual sense, right? They thought they were doing really, really well. They would have rated themselves very highly, and Jesus has to come in and say, nope, sorry guys, you are not doing well at all. And yet even there, as we'll see, there's grace for this church that's doing very poorly. So let's dive in. If you want to turn to Revelation, we'll finish off chapter 3. Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. Revelation 3, 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot or neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says churches. This is God's word. Let's hear it. So we've seen uh, the background to a number of these cities enter into how Jesus evaluates them and the kind of analogies he uses in describing their situations. And last week we looked at Philadelphia and how their city had been stricken with earthquakes and was earthquake prone and Jesus promises to make the one who conquers a secure and everlasting pillar in his eternal temple. And today we'll see some similar things going on. In fact, in the letter to Laodicea, we see a lot of local references to what was going on at the time. Laodicea, you can see it on the on the map there. Uh, it's marked with a little cross there, right above where it says Colossae. Laodicea is there. We've completed kind of an arc that goes up the coast and then back down the interior. There's Laodicea, a wealthy city, very wealthy actually. When many cities were destroyed by a major earthquake in AD 60, the Laodiceans refused help from the emperor. He was granting cities relief money to rebuild, and they're like, nah, we're good, we don't need it, we're, we have enough wealth. They were a powerful banking city. They were known for their medical school, which particularly specialized in vision and hearing deficiency. They were known for their textile trade, particularly in black wool. There seems to be a possibility they may have had some issues with their water supply, and all of these will play into the way Jesus evaluates them. Oh, yes, I see. Sorry, I'm like, did I say something wrong? Yes, in that way, maybe they are rather relevant to our own situation. It all kind of comes together, doesn't it? 
So as we've come to expect, Jesus identifies himself with an item from chapter 1. Some of it is word for word, and some of it uses similar ideas in different words. So Jesus here describes himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. We typically use the word Amen or Amen, however you want to say it, to conclude prayers. Sometimes if uh, someone's preaching and they make a particularly good point, somebody might say, Amen, preacher, something along those lines. But whether we realize it or not, the word, it means basically, I agree that that's true. I affirm that. You know, when somebody says, Amen, to something a preacher says, it means I agree with that. When we conclude a prayer with that, we say we're in unity with one another, praying together. We, we agree together. It was a favorite term of Jesus, actually. He would often say, literally, Amen, Amen, I say to you which many of our translations uh, have something like, very truly I tell you, something along those lines. In any case, Jesus is highlighting when he uses that formula, amen, amen, I say to you, that what follows is something trustworthy and true and worthy of attention. It's reliable what he's going to say. And, And we just have that affirmed for us in this passage. And the faithful and true witness mirrors that as well, right? I really like how John has used faithful and true together in this passage. Two sides of the same coin. I'm probably sounding a bit like a broken record by now, but we've called this series Don't Stop Believing. And we've emphasized over and over again that believing doesn't so much have to do with just affirming that things are true with your mind or your head. It also has to do with living it out. And here we have that in Jesus himself faithful and true. What he says is true. Who he is is true. He is who he says he is. But he also backs that up with the way he lived his life. In fact, being faithful to the very point of death on the cross. So it's important for us as we seek to be Jesus' disciples to remember that being faithful and true, it's not just something that happens with our minds. It's something that happens with our whole person as we seek to follow Jesus. The the final attribute that's uh, described of Jesus here is, some translations have the beginning, some have the ruler, kind of like the ruler uh, over God's creation. The the, the word in Greek has something to do with first, uh, in importance, perhaps in chronologic order, But anyhow, the number one, if you will. The number one over God's creation. You could say that. Let's not miss this. Many of us, we can just rattle off these kind of theological truths about who Jesus is that we learned, I don't know, in the Nicene Creed or something we memorized, or the, the Westminster Catechism, or whatever our tradition is. We learn, we learn how to express truths about who Jesus is. Fully God and fully man, all these kind of things. Is sometimes we say we believe this. Jesus is the supreme ruler over everything, over the whole universe. And we kind of turn around and treat him like he's more like a therapist who's basically there to make us feel better, or like he's some kind of a hype man to convince us that we're we're great and yeah, you can do it, you go, kind of coach to help us succeed in life. Instead of treating him as our king and ruler, we sometimes treat him like a sort of personal assistant. Let's remember, 
let's perhaps work to reclaim some of that sense of awe and wonder that we were singing about earlier this morning and that we read about in that first chapter of Revelation where John has that vision of Jesus and he's so overcome with awe and wonder that that he falls down and, and can't do anything. He's just completely overcome. So that's, that's the, the last picture that we get of Jesus in this last letter. And then he moves into some pretty familiar territory yet again. Every letter starts basically the same. I know. Except, well, in this case it's not really all that pretty. With the last church, Philadelphia, Jesus didn't have anything bad to say. This church is the exact opposite. He doesn't have anything good to say. But let's just review. Two churches are commended without reservation. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Three churches are mixed bags. Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira. They have some good works, but they also have some significant problems. That leaves two churches that Jesus didn't really have anything good to say about. Sardis and Laodicea. But even among them, those two, he just says the works of Sardis are incomplete. They're not doing well, but they're kind of just not doing anything, really. With Laodicea, though, it it goes to a whole new low. And he basically says, you have works, and the works you have are no good. They are terrible. It's it's really bad. And, And that's where we have to end. The initial evaluation is that they're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. As Dan was kind of already describing for us a bit. And like our own community, this community perhaps did have some issues with their water supply as well. Nearby Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. It was a spa community. From ancient times, they had spas and baths and all kinds of things set up. People would come there for the the healing properties of the water. Uh, Also not far away, as we saw on that map, Colossae was known for cold springs that, that were a source of good drinking water. Now, Laodicea had an aqueduct bringing water in from about five miles away. That in itself is not really uncommon. Many Roman cities had aqueducts to bring them water. In an initial phase of settlement, the local river would provide a water source for a small community. But as a city grows, the local water source, if it's just a river, usually gets contaminated because the population gets too big and you get sewage and garbage contaminating the water source until it's not really fit for drinking. It's been a problem since ancient times. And the solution has always been, well, let's find another water source further away that's not contaminated and we'll bring the water in. Common enough. So the water was piped in from a spring that was further away. But here's where it gets interesting. The water flowing through the aqueduct was sourced at a hot spring, not Hierapolis, but another similar one, probably in geological terms part of the same water system underground. That's not so unusual. There were plenty of Roman cities that did this. And if the spring water was hot, well, that was the best source of drinking water, and and that's great. Most aqueducts, though, were, were gravity systems, such that the engineers would just construct an aqueduct on a steadily descending grade from a spring up in the mountains or a water source down to a city. If they had to cross a valley, you know the thing, the the big arched causeway would just go straight across a valley to keep the grade uh, level and constant. You 
want the grade to not be too steep because the water will flow too fast and wear out the aqueducts, but it has to be a steep enough grade to keep it flowing, to keep an adequate water supply. But at Laodicea, it wasn't this just strictly open, gravity-fed system. It was a siphon system that was a closed, pressurized system. You can see the picture here shows the pipes, and the pipes were actually large stone blocks with big holes bored through them. And it seems like it's a bit of reconstruction, but perhaps what they were trying to do was insulate the pipe and keep the water hot until it got to their city. Perhaps they wanted hot water on demand like their neighbors over in Hierapolis. Perhaps it worked initially, but the archaeological evidence showed that the high calcium content in the water, something we have been familiar with over the years, corroded the pipes and started forming scale on them and clogging them up. And as the pipes get constricted, the water flow becomes less, slows down somewhat of a historical construction, but you can see the plausibility there. And, and I think it's important that we get something here. Frequently, it seems that we interpret this hot, cold, lukewarm thing in the following way. We interpret hot as good, on fire for Jesus, if you will. And then we interpret cold as bad, not believing at all. And then lukewarm, well, that's somehow worse problem is that, well, this isn't really something we've gathered from New Testament usage as much as we've kind of forced it on the passage because it's convenient for kind of revival preaching. You know, most of, there aren't many other instances to cold in the New Testament, and most of the ones that there are just are referring to the weather. The only certain use of cold as a metaphor for spiritual fervor is Matthew 24, 12. Jesus predicts that at the end of the age, the love of many will grow cold. However, a perhaps more relevant parallel is uh, Matthew 10.42, where Jesus says that whoever gives a cup of cold water in his name won't lose their reward. There, cold water is a picture of refreshment. And so it's, it's a positive thing. And it seems like that might be a parallel, at least roughly, to this passage in Revelation. Likewise, hot is not commonly used in the New Testament. Now, fire is a lot, used as an image, but in many cases, fire is not an image of spiritual fervor and passion, but rather an image of judgment, the fire of hell in particular. And if it's not an image of judgment and punishment, it certainly does usually provide a picture of purification or purging. And the one passage that might be different would be the day of Pentecost in Acts, where the, the tongues of fire come down on the people. But even there, I think we sometimes overlook the image of purification and possible connections with Isaiah chapter 6 and, and the call of God on him and the purification of his speech by the fire of God. At any rate, I think we have to be careful of just putting our own interpretation on this passage because it proves convenient for certain kinds of calls to action. There isn't really a strong pattern throughout the New Testament of hot being good and cold being bad. In fact, one of the parallels, like I said, cold is good because it's refreshing. This is kind of what Dan was getting at with the kids. Here's what I propose. Hot, cold, and lukewarm in this passage, and this might be contrary to some of the things you heard, it's, it's not primarily about our emotional states or the, the, the fervor of our worship or 
liveliness of our worship style. It's about the quality and the results of our works for the Lord, right? That's what it's tied to in this passage. The Lord says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. It's not about their emotional states, it's about what they're accomplishing or not accomplishing for Jesus. Kind of like Dan's illustration, here's one way to maybe think of it. I like coffee. When it's minus 35 outside, a nice hot cup of coffee is just the thing. It keeps your hands warm while you're holding the cup. You can drink it. It warms your insides. It's comforting. It's reassuring. But then in the summertime, when it's plus 35 instead of minus 35, it can be nice to get an iced coffee because that's refreshing. But you know what is never good? What's never good is the lukewarm cup of coffee that's been sitting on your desk or the kitchen counter for three or four hours and the cream has started to go off a little bit and you pick that up because you forgot that it's not hot anymore and you take a sip and you go, ugh, that's terrible tasting and your first impulse might be to spit that right back out. And this seems to be what the Lord is saying. Their works have no good qualities one way or the other. They could be a refreshing church. They could be a comforting and restorative church, but they're neither. They're just doing nothing. They're serving no purpose. The things that they're doing are just bad. So bad that they make Jesus want to gag. So what's the problem then? Jesus goes on. And this letter, like I said, probably more than any other, has a lot of concrete allusions to some of their cultural setting things probably points to a church then that was pretty wrapped up in the surrounding culture and in the way things were done and and the way things were valued and the way things were judged to be successful or not right they were they were measuring success by what their culture deemed successful and they thought they were doing really well jesus has to tell them sadly no that's not the case right the the stuff I was talking about at the start, the Dunning-Kruger effect comes in here. It's not just that this church was doing bad and didn't realize it. That's, that's a problem enough if you're doing bad and you don't realize it. It's, it's important to be corrected. But what's even worse is when you're doing bad and you think you're doing really well. That's what this church was doing. They thought they were spiritually rich, but they were completely broke. And this is a disastrous place for a church to be. Disastrous. They're so out of touch with reality that it shows there's something wrong at a very fundamental level. This isn't just some surface things need a little, little polishing, a little tidying and fixing up here and there. This is something disastrously wrong at a fundamental level. And it would seem, much as we might not like to admit this, that we're actually pretty good at deceiving ourselves in this way. So what are they so mistaken about? Well, they say they're rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. Remember that bit about the earthquake and how they said, oh, we don't need any help to rebuild, we're fine, thanks. It seems they kind of let that attitude permeate everything they were doing, and even spiritual things. Just an attitude of, of self-sufficiency and, and pridefulness just permeated everything. The surrounding culture, their church life. And that's a fatal attitude for a church to have. The, the whole point of the gospel is that we can't be self-sufficient. We are not self-sufficient. We're not enough in and of ourselves to qualify before God. And the only option we have is to humble ourselves and accept Him doing for us what we can't do 
in our own strength and for ourselves. That's the whole point. But the Lord goes on. Their their self-sufficiency and their, their materialism seem to be extreme, but, you know, he still holds out hope. Like, you guys are doing really, really bad, but he still holds out hope. That's basically what he's telling. You're doing really bad, but there is hope yet. In fact, he kind of talks more in this letter than any of the others about what might be done to correct their problem. And there we see the grace and the mercy of God. Is anybody here uh, familiar with Dave Ramsey, the, the financial guy? Anybody? Maybe a few of you? Yeah, hands going up. Good. Personally, I think sometimes he's a little on the extreme side. But the thing is, some of his clients need extreme measures if they're going to have any hope of recovering their financial health. I I was recently watching a little clip where it was somebody who was like 29 years old. This woman calls in, she and her husband. They're like 29 or 30, and they're a million dollars in debt. Yeah, 800,000 of which was not mortgage debt. Student and consumer debt. A million dollars in debt. You know, these people know they have a problem, but they can't seem to understand that they have a problem. You know what I mean? Like, it was kind of like she was thinking, well, can you just give me a little bit of advice here and there? Like, maybe if I just get regular coffee instead of lattes. And he's like, no. Listen to me, lady. I'm going to wreck your life. He said that. He was just, okay, here's, you're going to hate your life for the next five years. And he's just going on. Like, I'm going to wreck everything you hold dear. I'm going to wreck your lifestyle. But that, he was like, that's what it's going to take for you to pay off a million dollars in debt made some comment about the only time you're going to see the inside of a restaurant is the second job you take washing dishes at one like that that kind of stuff he was extreme extreme and i i'm not sure this this lady was was really buying it or could really even fathom it at the end it came out like that this woman and her husband still each owned a home and like hers wasn't even rented out he's like well sell it for goodness sakes you know she just, I don't think she got it. And I think that's probably how the original hearers of this letter would have responded to. Like maybe they had some inkling that, yeah, some things around our, our church community are not all that they could be, and this could be better, and that could be better. Yeah, you know, a little tinkering here and there might not hurt. But not this. I don't think they would have been prepared for basically, here's the thing, guys. Everything you're doing is garbage, and the way forward is to scrap it all and basically start over think they would have been ready for that. Not a message that what they're doing makes Jesus so sick feeling he wants to vomit. Not a message that nothing short of a complete change of everything is going to cut it. And yet, kind of like Dave Ramsey, Jesus does have this plan. It's like, if you want to get back on track, it's going to mean extreme change, but it will be worth it, and here's what you got to do. Jesus outlines it in, in pretty clear detail here. He says, in effect, you guys don't seem to realize that you're, you're broke spiritually, that you're wretched and pitiable and blind and naked and all the rest. So here's what I'm going to tell you to do. It's basically what Jesus says. Those financial institutions, all your material wealth, have got you thinking that that's the real wealth. Nope. You need to get some gold from me, some everlasting gold, some, some treasure in heaven, as Jesus might have put it. Those medical schools you've got, they've gotten, 
They've gotten you thinking you can heal what's wrong with you with your science and technology of the day. And Jesus is like, nope. You're going to need to come to me from the tr- for the true healing, the deep healing that, that is internal and spiritual. Get some medication from me. That garment industry, that it's got you thinking that that that's what can cover you and that's that can cover the shame of your nakedness with with fashion and the latest things nope that's not what's going to happen that's not what's going to do it either jesus says you're going to need to come to me for clothing instead as difficult as it is the first step in in recovering from self-deception is correction and that can be so hard almost impossible right because Here's what's going on. It's pride that's got us evaluating ourselves wrongly. That's what happens. That's what happened to these people. Pride was making them think they were way better than they were. But pride was the very thing they needed to get rid of in order to come to a a true assessment of their situation. Pride's exactly the thing that will stop them from what they most need. Pride's what's causing the problem. Pride is also preventing the solution. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Jesus isn't offering correction because he's mean. He's not offering correction or telling them they need to change or telling them they're not measuring up just because he's mean and wants to spoil their fun and, and just delights in kind of pulling the rug out from under people. It's not because he wants them to be miserable. The opposite. He's speaking these words out of love. He's speaking these words because he can see the path that this church and these people in it are going down. And he's saying, it's not good. This is leading nowhere good. You've got to make some changes or you're going to crash and you're going to crash really hard. Here's what I'm realizing more and more. And this is not an easy thing to come to terms with. A lot of people in our culture, maybe even most, if they go to church at all, People don't go because they want their lives corrected. Let me rephrase that maybe. They don't go because they want themselves corrected. Plenty of people would be happy for Jesus just to kind of come along and make their life better, uh, take away all the things that other people are doing that are problems, right? We'd like that. Many people would like that if we're honest. But it's much harder to admit that I'm part of the problem, right? Part of the reason my life is not all it could be because I'm part of the problem. And guess what the one thing that I might be able to change to make my life better is? It's me. Probably the the easiest thing in some ways to change, but the hardest thing to admit you need to change. So many of us can come to church because we we want to be stimulated toward positive emotions or even almost because we want to be entertained. Get a kind of shot in the arm of spirituality to get us going throughout the week. But if a church is just about emotional stimulation and life coaching, we don't don't really need Jesus for that. And it seems that's what happened to this church. The Laodicean Christians maybe fell into this. They said they were were doing well. They were rich. They were self-sufficient. Maybe it seems that they were trying to do church without Jesus prosperity and success seem to have deceived them into thinking. And they probably would have never said it, oh, we can do church without Jesus. 
that's, that's where the danger is. It's often in the, in the assumptions we have that we never actually come right out and say. And it seems that it was the case for this church. That they were just fine to make it on their own. Kind of get together, do the thing. And, and that's where we find Jesus at the end of this letter. Where is Jesus as he addresses this church? He's outside. He's standing out in the street, knocking at the door, hoping that they're going to let Jesus in. It seems that he's been, he's been pushed outside. A lot of times, this passage gets used in, in evangelistic contexts. And, and again, it's convenient to use it for that. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Probably good things have come of that. But in the actual context, it's not that Jesus has never been invited in. And, and he needs to be invited in for the first time. It seems that there was a point when Jesus was part of what was going on at this church now he's been pushed to the side. He's been pushed out. He's standing out in the street, knocking at the door, going, hey guys, you gonna let me, you gonna let me come back in? He's knocking at the door. But here, we truly see the, the love and grace of God, that even though Jesus has been pushed out by their self-sufficiency, he's still there. He's still knocking at the door. He still wants these people to invite him in. He still wants to have fellowship with him. That's, that's the solution for their problem. The solution for their problem is to invite Jesus in and make him part of their lives again. Make him part of what's going on. So just, all I have to do is op- repent and open the door and let him back in. And it's true that he, he speaks and he has to. A hard word of, of rebuke. But the goal isn't to punish or make them pay. The, the repentance is to make possible the conditions that will renew the fellowship with Jesus. So what do we need to ask ourselves? What do we need to do with this? Well, thankfully, I look around at, at our, our congregation, I see what's going on here, and, and I have to praise the Lord because our church, I believe by the grace of God, isn't like this church. Good things are happening here. I believe Jesus is in our midst. He, he's walking among us. He's doing things. I see, I see it happening in our congregation. And you know, I'm, I'm so glad for that, and I know that that's not something that we should just take for granted. I probably said before, I'm part of a kind of an online sort of pastors group, and uh, you hear a lot of horror stories in a group like that of churches that have gone bad, like this one at Laodicea, that have turned inward, that are that are backbiting and where there's all kinds of, of just horrible things going on. And, and when I read some of those stories and see what some of these other guys are going through, it, it makes me very thankful that yes, our church, like any church, it has its challenges, it has its issues, and so forth. But I think there's a lot to be thankful for in this community. But that doesn't mean that we're immune. It doesn't mean that, okay, well, we're not there, so we're all good and we don't need to be careful or anything. So what do we do? First of all, let's work hard to dispense with the notion that that lukewarm primarily has to do with an emotional state, right? With worship style or energy levels. You can have a church that has really what would be called on-fire worship services, and they're basically just putting on a show every Sunday. The Holy Spirit might not be energizing that. There might be nothing there. It might just be entertainment, basically. 
You can have a church, on the other hand, that has very traditional kind of worship services. And yet the Spirit is active. Things are happening. People are loving their neighbor. They're loving the Lord. They're reaching the lost. Amazing things are happening. There's not a direct correlation between worship styles and, and faithfulness to Jesus. Being hot or cold or lukewarm, it doesn't have primarily to do with emotional stimulation. It has everything to do with obedience to Jesus and transformation into his likeness. That's why we read the passage that Tim read earlier for us, right? That here's, here's the way that we should live. Here's the way that we're called to live. The Lord, the Lord wants that from us. And it should always be before us and always be our intention and our heart's desire to serve him faithfully. Second, and I think this is this is the real thing. We need to ask, you know, we as a church collectively, I think we've been faithful, and Jesus is not standing out there in the cold, knocking, trying to get in. But that doesn't mean that there might be areas of our lives where we prefer Jesus not to be a part of, right? It can be easy to think that we're happy to have Jesus as a part of the, the spiritual part of our lives. We're happy to have Jesus as a part of our lives on a, on a Sunday morning. But are there other areas maybe where, where Jesus is knocking and, and we're not really sure we want to let him into to that part of our lives, that part of our soul, that part of our inner being? Right? We're happy for Jesus to be part of, of our spiritual life. We want him to show up when we gather for worship. We want to show him to show up when when we need him because we're studying for a paper or an exam or, or we're in a difficult spot. We would love for Jesus to show up there. Like, come on in, man. We need you. But are there other areas where we're like, I don't know if I want Jesus to, to have access to that, at least not full access. Can I still control that a little bit? Like, man, maybe I'll just open the door just a little crack, just a little bit, you know, and kind of you know, like when somebody comes to your door selling something and you're not really sure. So, you know, you don't open the door all the way. You kind of put your foot there so it only gets about this far open. And talk to them. Talk to them through the crack in the door. But you don't want the person to come in, make their sales pitch, because then they're in your house and that's awkward. Are there some areas maybe where we're doing that a bit with Jesus where, like, yeah, I'll open the door a little crack to you, but I don't think that's what Jesus wants. I think he wants the, the door fully open so that he can come in. would it look like if we let Jesus all the way in into our into our financial decisions into the way we schedule our time and our family's time and our family's lives and into our our media choices and some of those things our work practices right? Jesus wants it all I won't pretend there's there's nothing to lose and that it, it might not be hard you know that that initial meal that Jesus is inviting himself in for might have to be a healthy serving of humble pie in that initial meal with Jesus. But the fellowship that can follow from that, I believe, is truly worth it. What we stand to lose is a lot less than what we stand to gain by inviting Jesus in, by opening the door all the way up, not just a crack. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that even when
can do it on our own, in our own strength, from our own abilities. And in effect, we, we push you out. That you still call us back. That you discipline us out of love, not out of spitefulness, not out of revenge, not to make us pay, but to restore the fellowship that's broken. We thank you, Lord, that, that even if we push you aside, you still stand at the door and knock. And uh, we ask that we ask that we would have the courage, the kind of courage that can only come from your spirit at work in us, to open that door, to open it wide up all the way into those areas of our lives where maybe we'd prefer uh, to, to keep control. We wouldn't uh, just open the door a crack with our foot kind of against it and talk to you through the crack, Lord, but we'd, we'd open it up. We'd invite you in. We'd invite you to do your, your cleansing work, to make a clean sweep um, of all the areas of our lives uh, that need your touch. We pray that as we um, move on from the letters to these churches, we wouldn't forget the, the lessons that we've learned there, that we would be able to rejoice in the things that are going well, where we see your spirit at work and active and good things happening and fruit being born, but we would also learn how to repent of those things uh, that need change and that you would show us, as you've laid out for this church, uh, how we walk in greater faithfulness going forward as, as individuals and as a body, we pray. In your name, Jesus.